Igen. Well, I'm happy to jump back into the book of Daniel. We're taking our time, going a lot slower than I had predicted. I, I had hoped that we'd be done by Advent. I, that's not going to happen. So it'll be longer than that. Uh, there's just too much there. But we're in Daniel 2, 25 to 49, if you want to open there. Uh, but our series on Daniel is about how God has the whole world in his hands. Just like the, the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. And today we're going to look specifically at how God is in control of the big picture. He's in control of the rise and the fall of nations. The rise and the fall of kingdoms. And the truth of the matter is, if God is in control of the big stuff, that also means he's in control of the little stuff. Right? right? I mean, you think about it, all the big stuff, the rise and fall of kingdoms and all that, all means, all starts from individuals doing small stuff, and you just conglomerate all that stuff, and that's what makes the big stuff. I remember I had a, a teacher, a professor, before, who said to the class that God is only sovereign, he's only in control of the big stuff. He only knows about the big stuff. The small stuff, like what you have for lunch, he's not that interested in, or he doesn't, he doesn't really know. And one student, with a bit of a, a, a smart comment, he said, well, what if for lunch I could choose the tuna salad, which is poisonous, would end up in the hospital and kill me, and, or I could choose the ham sandwich. Then is he in charge of our lunch as well? Uh, and I think he makes a good point, even though it was sarcastic. If, if the big stuff, if God's in charge of the big stuff, all the big stuff is, is a conglomeration of the small stuff put together. In fact, when I think about the Reformation, uh, what we talked about the last two days, uh, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, that was one of the biggest changes, perhaps, of, of, the, of the Christian church, where there was a return back to the gospel, a return back to the authority of the scriptures as our, our sole authority for the church. Uh, how did that start? It started with the small stuff. It started with a monk. Some of you guys heard this who were at the conference, but you get to hear it again. I love the story. started with a monk named Martin Luther. Actually, before he was a monk, he got caught in a lightning storm. Um, as he was out there in a lightning storm, uh, he was afraid for his life, got down off his horse, and he said to God, God, well, actually, he prayed to a saint, interestingly enough, Saint Anne, if you save me from this lightning storm, I will become a monk. Which is ironic because he started the Reformation, which toppled the whole cult of saints and the idea that we could pray to the saints. But he prayed to a saint, made a commitment to become a monk. Uh, as he became a monk, he struggled with a guilty conscience. He struggled with the fact that he would never be good enough for God. He struggled with the fact that God is a just God. He's a holy God. He's a God who judges sin and that he could never stand before God based on his own good works, on his, on, on his own goodness, or anything that he did. In fact, he would go to confession every single day. Every single day, he would try to do penance. And so his mentor, his confessor, he went to confession six hours a day. Can you imagine having to be his confessor, listening to his list of sins over and over and over? Well, his uh, confessor was a, a wise man, actually, uh, uh, Johann von Staupitz. And Staupitz said to him, uh, don't come back, Luther, until you commit a real sin. Because I don't want to hear any more about all these little peccadillos. So don't come back until you go and kill your father. Uh, this is what he said, patricide, or, or some horrible sin. I don't want to see you again here, just listing off all of these small sins. But he said as soon as he would leave the confession, thoughts would come into his mind and he would realize again that how far he is from God, that he would need to confess it again. Well, Staupitz said to Luther, Luther, you're, you're making too much of this. This is far more simple than you think it is. All you have to do is love God. And Luther said these terrifying words. He said, Love God. I hate God. Because he was dealing with the struggle of his conscience. 
And so his mentor very wisely said, you know what you need? You need to go back to the scriptures. I'm sending you to do your doctorate. I'm sending you to go work uh, on Bible. You're going to preach to a congregation. (laughs) Which Luther thought was crazy. Why would you send a sick doctor, a sick man to be a doctor to others? But he knew what he was talking about. He sent him to go preach the gospel, to preach the word to a congregation and to chair Bible at a university. And it's there, as he was studying through Romans and Galatians, that he came to realize that this gospel comes to us freely by faith in Christ and faith alone. And that's what began to change Luther's whole life, his perspective of Christ and his understanding that God is not a, a God of wrath. When we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are free in him. And from that point forward, it broke out. This gospel of grace began to break out and spread all over Europe and all over the world. And that began the Reformation. God is in control of the small stuff as much as he's in control of the large stuff, the rise and fall of kingdoms. In fact, he's in control especially of his eternal kingdom. Luther wrote these famous words uh, in his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the final verse of that song, The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And friends, that's what we're going to see, I think, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 25, that God is in control of everything and that His kingdom is forever. You can look with me in your Bibles or it will be on the screen as well. Uh, you may remember from last week, if you, some of you guys weren't here last week, we're studying the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were these teenagers taken from the land of Israel, taken to Babylon. They were put in the palace. They sort of rose up in the palace after being trained for three years as they were recognized to be not only uh, more physically fit than others, but also wiser than all of the rest. And then this whole idea of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, having a dream, uh, a specific dream that he couldn't interpret. He asked his wise men, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Nobody could tell him the dream, of course, because it's a private dream. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. And then we come to what we're seeing right here, Daniel 2.25. Then Arioch, he's the commander of the army, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So here we see Daniel become literally the second most powerful man in the world at that point in time. God is in control, and his kingdom is eternal. There's a breakdown in your bulletin, as always. If you'd like to take notes and just see where we're going. Uh, first, God lets us know he's in control. He lets us know that he's in control through his word. We're going to look at 25 to 30, and then so the beginning and the end. We're going to take the, the dream itself and its interpretation and, and look at that in the next two points. But first, right before and right after, God is in control, and he lets us know. Arioch brings Daniel to the king. Uh, he says, I found a man of Judah who can do what the king has asked. So again, Judah uh, were the people of the Jews. So again, he's raising up his people even here in exile. And the king asks him, are you able to do this, Daniel? Are you able to tell me the dream that nobody, he's told nobody else? Tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. Tell me its interpretation. And Daniel's answer is, no magician, no astrologer, no enchanter, no Chaldean. Nobody can do this, what you've asked. But king, there is a God in heaven. Not many gods in heaven. Not even Marduk and his wife Tiamat. That was the sort of the Babylonian gods. There is one God who reigns over all. There is a God in heaven. And he reveals mysteries. That he saw you. 
while you were in bed. Notice it mentions in bed a couple of times there. Because what more private place is there than in your own bedroom? You told this dream to no one. You laid there in your own bed in your privacy. And God knows what you saw. And now he's giving it to you. Notice that, that Daniel is careful to give all the credit to God. Uh, he's going to give all the glory to God. He doesn't want anything for himself. What does he say here? Not because of any wisdom that I have. <laughs> so this isn't because Daniel is such a smart guy that he was able to figure this out. That he's able to somehow figure out the dream and it doesn't make any sense. No, this is because there is a God in heaven. And he lays out before him the dream and Nebuchadnezzar's response. We see at the end of this chapter, he is truly God of gods and Lord of kings. He falls on his face. There we are, the most powerful man in the world, the destroyer of nations, as Jeremiah calls him, falls on his face. But I don't think he's right quite there yet. I don't think he's actually a believer at this point in time. Uh, one, he gives way too much credit to Daniel. Daniel, he says, you revealed to me the mystery. That's the one thing that Daniel tried to make very clear to him. I didn't do this. God reveals mysteries. I'm just the, the vessel. I'm just the herald. I'm just passing along his message. He raises up Daniel. He gives Daniel all the gifts and so forth. But you see Nebuchadnezzar at least starting to come along here uh, a little bit. But God lets us know that he's in control. He lets us know he's in control. He's in control of the rising and the falling of nations. He reigns over history. <laughs> I've heard it said before that history is his story, which is kind of cheesy, but actually it's really helpful. God is working out his story, his plan over his creation over time. But history is not some random chaos, but God is ultimately, through it all, working out his purpose and his plans. How many of you guys have seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire? Oh man, I would have thought more people had seen it. But all right, well, Slumdog Millionaire is a movie about a young Indian kid who uh, gets, play, gets to play who wants to be a millionaire in the Indian version. And uh, he's able to answer all the question, which, questions and the, win the million dollars, which is, makes him able to really save his, his girlfriend. And the question at the very beginning of the, 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 the movie is, how is he able to answer all of these questions? And they put it on the screen this. How was, able to, was Jamal able to win who wants to be a millionaire? There are four things. A, he is cheating. B, he is brilliant. C, he is lucky. You guys remember D, who have seen the movie? D, it is written. That ultimately all of his experiences led him uh, to, to answer the questions right. Well, friends, in a sense, friends, when we see history, it is written. God has a plan. He's working out his perfect will through it. And he lets us know what his plan is, oftentimes. He lets us know through his prophets who spoke about the future at times. He lets us know through his written word. He lets us know through his son, Jesus. When Jesus came and spoke to us and the way he lived, he lets us know through the scriptures. God knows, he's in control of all things, and he lets us know what it is. In fact, Daniel's dream here, we'll get to it more specifically later on, but it's so precise about what happens and what unfolds over the following centuries of this book that a lot of people have argued that Daniel could not have written this in the 6th century. There's no way it could actually be. So it must have happened after all of these events actually occurred because there's no way that he could write it beforehand, which is the whole point. Right? If, if he wrote it after all the events occurred, what would be the point of saying it? I mean, if I told you today, I said, I believe, I prophesy that in 2016, in 2016, the, the Patriots are going to come back from behind and win in overtime against the Atlantic, Atlanta Falcons and not lead by even a single point the entire game. You guys would say, yeah, big deal, Rick. That already happened. 
We all, there's, there's nothing amazing about that. If I told you that a year ago, that may be something. Uh, so Daniel is prophesying something that's so specific about history that it reveals that God is in control. That's the point. That we're not just a, a random rock flying through endless space until we hit a meteor and it ends everything. History is not aimless. It's not just circular. That's sort of the atheistic view. Uh, one uh, famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What a difference we see in Scripture, that there is a purpose behind what God is doing in all of history, which means, of course, there's a purpose in what He's doing individually in our lives as well. well why does God let us know? Why does he let us know what's to come? One is so that we can recognize that God is God. I mean, God is invisible. He's the creator of all. We have faith in him, but he reveals it to us so that we can know that he is ultimately in control. In the, mo- in the movie Rudy, you remember what the, the one clergyman man says to him, I've only learned two things in all my years of being a clergyman. That there is a God, Rudy, and I'm not him. <laughs> That's a good line, isn't it? Yes, there is a God, and I'm not him. He has control over history. We see it as he reveals it in his word. So we trust his word. He tells us that we can trust his word, that he is true to his promises. God, the word of God, claims authority. Well, prove it. Prove that this Bible is true. How do we know it's true? Well, he does it again and again. He does it specifically, I think, in the life of Jesus. Most or many of the prophecies in Scripture come true when? In the life of Jesus himself. Uh, I've heard that there are, this is one approximation anyway, that there are 2,500 prophecies in Scripture, of which 2,000 of them have already come true. So 2,500, 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 have already come true, which means we're still waiting for about 500 of them. Most of them probably come true at the return of Christ. Why does God tell us so we can trust His Word, that His Word is indeed true? And friends, thirdly, so that we're ready for what's to come. If we know that God knows the future, then we can be ready for what is to come. We can be ready for the fact that there is a judgment upon sin and the way we live our lives, but that there is grace found in those who put their hope in Jesus, turn from their sin and put their hope in Jesus, and that there ultimately is no need to fear for those in Christ. Which brings us to the next point, 31 to 43, that God is in control of the nations, so do not fear. That's why he tells us, so we don't fear. Daniel tells him the dream, and he interprets it. He says, King, you saw a huge image, a huge statue, which really would have been clearly seen as a huge idol, is what it is, a gigantic picture of a god. That's what it ultimately is. It represents four kingdoms over history. You have the head of gold. You have, a, some of you guys have a study Bible, probably has a little picture of it right there in there. But you have the head of gold. You have a chest and the arms, which are made of silver. You have the thighs, which are made of bronze. And then the legs and the feet kind of go together. The legs are made of iron. The feet are made of iron and clay uh, together. And this is most likely what he's referring to. Uh, when you look at Daniel and you think of what played out over history, you have uh, the head, which is Babylon. Actually, uh, Daniel tells him that's what it is. He says, the head, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, is you. It's Babylon. It's the head of gold. It's this powerful, beautiful kingdom. Next comes the Persians, which he says is weaker, which is true. It's a weaker kingdom. The silver 
is Persia. After, uh, after Persia comes Greece. And he says, with this kingdom will rule the world, will conquer the world. Well, that's exactly what Greece did. It conquered most of the known world. It spread throughout the kingdoms. Alexander Great uh, took uh, Greek culture. He spread as far as even India. There was a point where his men, his army, were fighting elephants, and they'd never even seen elephants or heard of elephants, really. I mean, they spread the kingdom of Greece to the ends of the earth. And then comes the iron, the feet, uh, the legs and feet, which most likely almost certainly refers to Rome, which ruled with an iron fist, but after time with its multiple leaders, had the feet of clay and began to break down. And then after that comes Jesus. We'll come to that next, this rock that comes flying in. What does this statue show, friends? Well, one, it shows that the, the kingdoms are getting weaker and weaker. You notice that? Get sort of the Olympic medals there. Gold, silver, bronze. Then iron, which is a less valuable. Then clay. And what happens when you have clay at the bottom of a gigantic statue? <laughs> the whole statue is now toppling. It's not, it's not uh, firm. It also shows that we make an idol. We make an idol of the kingdoms of this world, don't we? It's impressive. It's beautiful. It's rich. It's, it's powerful. It must have been a stunning sight to see. A, an image with all of these precious metals. It's man-made. Unlike the rock we'll look at. But it's temporary. It's only for a time and it's fleeting. And the whole thing has feet of clay. In fact, that term, feet of clay, we use sometimes today, comes from this dream, actually. Someone that has feet of clay has a certain flaw to their character, their weakness. Well, that's the weakness of the statue. The whole thing is top-heavy and ready to fall. All of these kingdoms, as beautiful, as amazing, as glorious as they may seem, are all man-made and temporary. They do not last. Let me give you some examples. We'll do a little test here. Uh, We'll throw that next picture up there. Anyone know what that is? Colosseum, good, everybody got the Colosseum. Uh, that's uh, one of the great sort of uh, architectural structures of Rome. How about the next one? This is the hardest one, I think. Anyone know what that is? No, someone said Parthenon, not, not. The Acropolis, very good. Somebody nailed the Acropolis. Okay, and the next one? All right, James, what's that? That's the Parthenon, right? Okay, we did, got them all, that was pretty good. What did you notice about all three of those beautiful, amazing structures? They're abandoned and falling apart. <laughs> They represent something that was great and mighty in the past that is no more. All of these kingdoms didn't last. We could say the same about Egypt. We could say the same about Assyria or any of these great kingdoms of our history. So do not fear them. Don't fear North Korea, even if you've been watching the news. Some of you guys know I was... uh, I was very privileged to, to um, publish a, a short letter in the New York Times, which for me, it's like a bucket list. I, got, you know, I checked that off the bucket list, right? I mean, that's amazing things uh, for me. But basically, in the, in the letter, what I'm saying is we don't, the South Koreans don't live in fear of North Korea. They just carry on with life. And don't fear. Yes, be wise, but don't fear. Augustine, the famous uh, theologian of the past, wrote a book, a book called The City of, of God, which is about how he describes uh, Rome, the fall of the Roman Empire. As, as Rome began to fall, people said, oh, the whole of Christianity is falling because Rome is falling. And what did Augustine say? He said, no, that's the city of man. But there is a city of God that will never fall. Don't put your hope in the city of man. No fear. All of it is temporary. There's only one eternal kingdom. 
And this is true not only of, uh, of ancient kingdoms, it's true of modern kingdoms. I have a lengthy quote I want to give you, uh, so I have to put it up on the screen here, by Mal- Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a Christian, a, a journalist. Listen to what he said here. In one lifetime, I have seen my own fellow countrymen, he was British, ruling over a quarter of the world. The great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God who's made the mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as a wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one little lifetime. All gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with a dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin a forbidden name and the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of Don Quixote's of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these self-styled sullen supermen and imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, and in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. It's all these kingdoms of this world are temporary. Don't live in fear of them. Even our own country, I love the United States. I believe the United States is the greatest country in the world. I I grew up with a a mother, first-generation immigrant, who reminded me all the time, you live in the greatest country in the world, don't you forget it. So, (laughs) I love our country. But I understand, friends, that even our country is temporary. It will end. Scriptures tell us that we are citizens of heaven. That we are aliens and strangers in this world. That we are ambassadors to this world. That we live in a temporary body, but to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. Friends, our hope is not in this world. Don't fear the kingdoms of this age, but look to the eternal kingdom. 45 to the end of the chapter here. God reigns in control of an eternal kingdom. He reminds them here that there is an eternal kingdom. He talks about this rock. And he describes this rock and this dream as not cut by human hands. It's not man-made. It's not an image. It's not an idol. In fact, uh, as Mitch could tell us from Exodus, uh, you, when, you made, when you had made an altar, you weren't to use any tools on the altar because it could look like an idol. This is Exodus 20:25. 20, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it with hewn stones. Or if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. So here's a, here's a rock that's not cut by any human. So it doesn't look anything like an idol. It, the rock clearly, I think, refers to Jesus. We sang it earlier, Christ the solid rock. I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He's the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Not cut by human hands because Jesus was incarnate. Jesus was not. He was, he was God in the flesh. 
And he says, God sets up this kingdom. Uh, This is a kingdom that God himself creates. It's created by the gospel. It's created by the death of Jesus for us on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And it's a kingdom, he says, that will never be destroyed. It'll never be left to another. It's not like part of the statue where it gets replaced by the next section. This kingdom lasts forever. And this kingdom breaks in pieces the statue. And just again, to the clarity of prophecy, how does it break in pieces the statue? It hits it at the feet. And the feet represents, most likely, as we said, Rome, which is the empire which Jesus was born into, and the empire that eventually came and broke into pieces, and Jesus, uh, after the spread of the gospel, after Christ rose from the dead. But he says that this rock, after it hits the statue, what happens to it? It becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. (laughs) It's not limited by geography. It's not limited by one single culture. It's not limited by a single race or a single language. It spreads across the whole earth. A few things to note about this, friends, that this is different. This kingdom he's talking about is different than any earthly kingdom. It's invisible. It's spiritual. It it doesn't have any military or any politicians to it. Actually, this kingdom is a monarchy. It's a kingdom with a king who ultimately reigns over it forever. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's a kingdom with a very different characteristic to it. Well, friends, we should also be grateful that we live in this time. We live in a time in which the kingdom has come. We are in this kingdom. Even as we await for it to fully reach the ends of the earth and come. And pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, the mountain is still spreading. (laughs) So this prophecy is still being fulfilled even in our day. Uh, We can be part of God's work of seeing this mountain spread to the ends of the earth. That's what the work of missions is all about. Uh, We're going to have Bo Columbine, one of our missionaries to Senegal, come and preach, I think, on November 12th. Also, the Millers, if you haven't heard yet, have actually already bought their plane tickets to head out one way to Nepal. Coming up on November 13th. Bringing the gospel to a place where Christ's name is hardly known at all. The mountain is still spreading. His kingdom is still spreading. All these other kingdoms fall apart, but his kingdom never ends. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name, right? Friends, what is your relationship to this kingdom? One, you're not yet part of it. Uh, You're just a citizen of this world alone. And if that's you, what I want to say is welcome. (laughs) Welcome to this kingdom. Get to know the king who still reigns over his kingdom and welcomes you to his presence. Maybe you are part of this kingdom, but you're struggling. You're struggling with doubts. You're struggling with trials. You're struggling with temptations to sin, whether you should trust God and walk by faith or give in, whatever it may be. Know that this king loves you. He's with you. He's working out his perfect plan for you. He's a far greater king than Nebuchadnezzar or any worldly king that's ever lived. He cares about you. Or you're part of this kingdom, but you're wondering, now what? Now what? Well, I'd say this. Enjoy being part of the kingdom. Rest in Christ. But also invite and wait for Christ's return. Invite folks to come. Jesus said to do so. Luke 14, uh, 23. The master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Welcome people into this kingdom. Friends, God is in control. And his kingdom is eternal. He's got the whole world in his hands.
That song uh, was first published uh, in the paper-bound hymnal in 1927. So that was uh, 90 years ago. Some of you guys were around when this was first published in 1927. Uh, And you could tell us better than I could that the world has changed a little bit since 1927. Uh, Kingdoms and cultures, they rise and they fall. I got a picture of uh, 1927 there. Uh, Here's what was happening in 1927. The president was Calvin Coolidge. How many people remember Calvin Coolidge? Uh, Pan America Airways is formed. So uh, my my dad and my brother are both airline mechanics. Pan America doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, Work begins on Mount Rushmore in 1927. Leon Trotsky is expelled from the Communist Party in Russia, and Joseph Stalin takes control. 1927. Charles Lindbergh. Anyone know Charles Lindbergh? Bob, you remember Charles Lindbergh? Okay. Flies the spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic nonstop and solo direct from New York City to Paris as the first solo transatlantic flight. Ford Motor Company ceases to manufacture the Model T after making 15 million cars and begins selling the Model A with several body styles and prices start at $460. A brand new car. (laughs) It's gone up in value if you still have one of those, by the way, those Model A's. It wasn't a perfect world. There were huge issues back then. Some similar to what we have now. The Great Mississippi Flood affects 700,000 people in the greatest national disaster in U.S. history. A lot has changed, friends, over time. But the same God is still writing his same story. It is written. He's working out his perfect plan. And he's expanding his eternal kingdom. Pray with me. Well, gracious Father, we are thankful that you are in control of all things. And sometimes, Lord, it is helpful for us to take a step back and look at the big picture. Look at the rise and the fall of kingdoms. Look at how you are sovereign over an eternal kingdom a spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom in which we are part of through faith in Jesus. But Lord, what a reminder it is to us as well to know that if you are indeed in charge of all of history, then you are in charge of our little lives as well. Lord, you are in charge of all things, not only like the day of our death, but even over what we have for lunch, because it's all those small things that make up the big plan. You care about us, you love us. When we fail and we make mistakes, When we doubt you, when we give in to temptation and sin, instead of faith, we repent, we turn back to you, we look to Jesus, we trust in him, and we continue to walk in faith. Help us as a church, Lord, and as individuals to welcome people into this eternal kingdom. Thank you that the king, with open arms, with a smile on his face, looks to those who would come and embraces them. Thank you, Father. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.